We are in the middle of a um, sermon series called Divine Diagnostics. I don't know, most of us in this room have been asked diagnostic questions before. We've been here, or my, Krista, my wife and I and our family, we've been here in Rome now for um, six and, no, 16 and a half years. And planting a church is a little bit like starting a business. And you, you do a lot of work at the very beginning. You don't always do a good job of resting or doing things that energize you. And so it's very easy, whether you're starting a business or starting a church to get burned out. Well, probably year three or four, I hit my first little burnout phase. And uh, as I was going through it, I remember going and talking to some church planting buddies of mine who were older than me and had, you know, gone through the process before. And they asked me a list of diagnostic questions. And one of the diagnostic questions they asked me is they said, are you taking a Sabbath? And I said, well, you know, I kind of, you know, hemmed and hawed a little bit. And the reality was, is I really wasn't taking a Sabbath. I wasn't resting because, you know, so many pastors work on Sundays. You know, that's typically the day that people, you know, have as a day of rest. And my day was just filled with, you know, church and meetings after church and things in the evening. And so there was no rest. And so I started carving out a day of the week to, to really f- to rest. And that really kind of helped me in some ways. Well, a few years later, I hit another little burnout period. I went back to the same group of guys and, uh, and said, hey, I'm feeling burned out. Kind of like, you know, when your phone battery starts dying and it, it says 6% left and it turns red. And I kind of got to that point and I went and met with some of my, my, these same guys, these church planning buddies, and I told them how I was feeling. And they asked me, again, some diagnostic questions, um, one of which was, are you resting? I'm like, I'm resting. I'm taking a Sabbath, I promise. And uh, then th- they asked me another question. And this question was, what do you do that energizes you? And I remember sitting there for a second thinking, I, I don't even, that's, that question doesn't even compute to me. I've got three small children. We're starting this church. You know, we're super busy. I don't do anything that energizes me. And they said, well, you may want to think about that. And so I started finding some things that, you know, gave me energy. Those are, those are examples of diagnostic questions. Now, part of what we see in scripture is that Jesus and God both ask questions. Now, most of you know this, but God is omniscient. That means he knows everything. And so when he asks a question, he kind of already knows the answer, right? We would agree with that. And so some of the questions that God asked are diagnostic questions. They're for the intention of allowing us to see what's going on inside of us or allowing us to see the reality of a situation. And so the first week of our sermon series, we looked at this question that God asks to Adam and Eve after they've sinned. He says, where are you? And of course, he knows where they are, but it turns out that where they are is they're covered with leaves and they're hiding in the bushes because they're ashamed and afraid. In other words, he's asking them this diagnostic question so that they would realize where their desire to be in charge of their own life has gotten them. And then last week, we looked at this question where Jesus is, uh, is talking to the sermon, the people, the crowds at the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then not do what I tell you to do? It's a great question, and I think what happens is we listen to that question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and if we, we take it seriously, and if we let it be a diagnostic question, then we sit back for a minute and go, well, that's a good question. Why do I do that? And I told Krista, my wife, last week, I was like, that's the sermon I'm kind of the most fearful of preaching because I know for a fact there are lots of areas in my life where I call Jesus Lord, but then don't do what he says. Today, we're going to be looking at yet another diagnostic question. And this question is one that's probably pretty familiar to many of us, even culturally. And it's the question that Jesus asks. He says, why do you look at the speck in uh, other people's eyes, but not notice the log in your own? But before we begin the sermon, we're going to, let me introduce the opening um, illustration. We're going to begin with a, a, today's sermon with a clip from a movie that I do not rec- recommend. Let me just say this, I do not recommend this, but it's from Austin Powers. 
And in the clip, um, we're introduced to a character who is a mole, kind of a double agent slash spy kind of guy for the British Intelligence Agency. He has infiltrated Dr. Evil's inner circle. Dr. Evil is the bad guy. He's the villain. And in the clip, we see the mole meeting both Dr. Evil and then Austin Powers, both of whom are distracted by a certain physical feature or anomaly uh, that this uh, mole possesses. Let me open us up with prayer, and then we'll uh, watch this clip. Father, thank you. I thank you, Father, that you um, love us enough to ask us these questions so that uh, we can discover where it is that we are and how we got there and, and what it is that we're doing to hurt ourselves and hurt those that we love. And Father, I pray today in particular um, that as we look at this question, um, that we would uh, humbly and courageously entrust ourselves to you, our good Father, and your Son, Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. You know, sometimes I pick an illustration. I'm like, I don't know if that's okay to use or not. I'm definitely not recommending making fun of anybody. In fact, the irony that's in this clip is that, you know, you've got this guy, the mole, who's got this mole, which is kind of, a, kind of funny. Anyway, but uh, in it, you've got Dr. Evil, and Dr. Evil is distracted by his mole, but he's got this huge scar on his face, and he's the villain who's super, you know, pale, and he's bald. And then what happens is you see Austin Powers, and Austin, you know, the, the old uh, sort of perspective on British people is they had bad teeth, like back in the 60s and 70s. And so you've got Austin Powers with his bad teeth or whatever, and he's distracted by this guy, you know, in his per- particular physical issue. And then even later, we didn't go to this clip, but there's another clip where Mini-Me, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Mini-Me, but he's basically the exact physical representation of Dr. Evil, except he's only two feet tall. And so you've got all these guys who are looking at this physical malady found in this character, but they've got their own shortcomings that they could and probably should focus on instead. See, there's a, there's a point to my illustration here, I promise. Anyway, today's diagnostic question is found toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus has been talking to this really large crowd. It's made up of disciples, and it's made up of apostles, it's made up of people who, frankly, want to be there to be healed, and some people who need to be cleansed of evil spirits. There's all these different people there in this crowd, and he teaches them about what a godly life or a God-honoring life would look like. And what happens is a toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's almost like he pauses because he realizes that all of the people that he's speaking to, instead of letting these things apply to them, they're thinking about how they might apply to other people, people that they know, if that makes sense. And so he asks this question. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And so let's just take a moment, let's read this, this little section that that question is embedded in. Follow along with me as I read Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take this speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, there is a lot here in these six verses, seven verses, six verses, and we'll get to different parts of that in just a minute, but in order to stay focused on the theme of this series, I just really want to primarily look at this question again. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? 
And so there are any number of different possible answers to that question. In fact, I did a little brainstorming session and just wrote down a bunch of things on a piece of paper. And man, I could have come at this from a bunch of different angles. And so instead of giving you all of those different angles, I want to leave you with two potential answers of why it is that we might do this. The first is pride and the second is fear. Pride and fear. Let's start with pride. Quick illustration or a quick qualification here. Not all instances of pride are negative. The Bible allows for appropriate pride, and of course it condemns sinful pride. That's what this is talking about right here. But like so many things, it's context that determines when pride is appropriate and when it's not. If I said, I'm proud to be Levi's father, this is my son Levi up here, that'd be appropriate. On the other hand, if I walked around with my chest puffed out looking down my nose at other people because I drive a 2002 Camry, that would be somewhat odd, right? That would be weird. For the purposes of today's discussion, we're just going to focus on sinful pride. Now, the Bible uses several different words that can be translated as pride. One is hyperephania, and it's excessive shining or self-exaltation. And I think we have a little picture of it up here. We've got this little picture of this person saying, look at me, look at me. That's one version of pride. That's sort of what that Greek word gets at. There's another word that uh, is translated as pride. It's alazon, and it means boastfulness, and it's when you brag. I don't know if you can see that, but there's a, a little guy up here, and he's bragging to his two buddies, and one is covering his ears. The other one has some disgust on his face. We don't like to be around people who brag. Uh, the next one is fusiosis. That means sort of a, a puffing up, and there's a picture of a blowfish. I don't know if you see that little guy, blowfish, but blowfish are amazing little creatures. They're very tiny but they can suck all this water into themselves to make themselves look much, much bigger than they are. You can see how that might be translated as pride. And then hooper upsu, which uh, means to be exalted beyond measure, to carry oneself loftily. That's a picture of Conor McGregor doing the millionaire walk. You can think about Muhammad Ali. There are other people we know who uh, really sort of are constantly lifting themselves up. And so those are just four of many different words that could be described as pride. Each uh, of these words uh, has the sense or intention of drawing attention to oneself or lifting oneself up to make oneself higher. In fact, the Hebrew word for pride literally means to be high, to be high, and not in the snoop, D-O-double-G kind of way. Inevitably, the result of lifting oneself up high is that you end up looking down on other people and forgetting to look at God at all. That's what mere Christianity, the point that mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis makes in mere Christianity. He says this, the Christians are right. It is pride, which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. That's interesting that he would say it's the chief cause of misery in families and in uh, nations. That's pretty remarkable. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people. But pride always means enmity. That's a fascinating thought there. It's always competitive. It is enmity, and not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God, right? So there's, there's always this, this brokenness relationally that flows out of pride. He goes on to say, in God, you come up against something which in, is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. That's really a really great quote. One of Jesus' most convincing lessons or pictures or illustrations of pride 
is found in Luke chapter 18. Listen to what Jesus has to say here in this illustration, this story. He says this, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, this tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So all of this leads us back to Jesus' question, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? One answer is clearly pride. You don't know that you have a two-by-four in your own eye. You can't see it. You think you're absolutely fine. You think you can see perfectly, and in one sense, you can see perfectly well, especially when you're looking at other people. You can spot their specks of sawdust from a mile away. So who does this apply to? I'm going to hit a little close to home here. Uh, Ministry people, like myself, Enneagram 2s, if you're familiar with Enneagram, uh, and narcissists. These are three people, or three classes of people, among others, that are likely to fall into this category. Ministry people in Enneagram 2s are so busy trying to help other people that they often don't take the time to be introspective about their own brokenness and their own sin. Does that make sense? You're so focused on other people. You want to help other people so much that you forget to look at your own brokenness and your own sin. As a result, we can become arrogantly self-righteous without even realizing it, right? And all of a sudden, we're ministering to these people, but not for their sake. It's ultimately really for our sake, that we might feel valuable. Mothers and fathers, believe it or not, can fall into this category as well. We can be so busy shaping and forming and molding our kids, helping them see their faults and giving them advice on how they should live life that we often have stopped seeing and repenting of our own brokenness when what might actually be the greatest gift of all that we could give them would be our humility, would be our vulnerability, our brokenness. So what are the action items for you if you find yourself in this pride category, not looking at your own sin because you're prideful? First of all, I would encourage you to pay attention to how often you find yourself passing judgment on someone else. Honestly, I was super aware of this um, in my own life this week. As I was preparing for this sermon, I found myself over and over again aware that I was being judgmental about other drivers. I was judgmental about the lady ordering coffee in front of me, like, can you not just know what you're going to order before you get there kind of stuff? You know, we, Chris and I watch The Amazing Race sometimes. It's very easy even to criticize the people on The Amazing Race. You know what I mean? How can you not use a map anyway? But again, the root and the energy of all this judgmentalism, in my heart anyway, was pride. So I would encourage you, if you find maybe that this is you, to pay attention. If you constantly find yourself seeing other people's faults, critiquing other people's actions and attitudes, or believing that you can help them because of your great giftedness and your great wisdom, I would encourage you to beware, to beware. Secondly, you need to remember the gospel. In the words of Tim Keller, the gospel is this. 
we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. So if you aren't able to see how you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared to believe, then Jesus' teaching here is actually for you. It's part of the gospel. Either Jesus was wrong about you or you were. If you can't very quickly make a list of how your sin has cost you and cost the people you love and cost God himself, then I would guess that you probably have some work to do. In the words of Jesus, you've got a log in your own eye that needs to be removed, and that kind of work takes time. In fact, it takes a a lifetime. So why do we see the specks of sawdust in other people's eyes but not the logs in our own? One answer is pride. Why else might we find ourselves in this dilemma? Another possible answer to Jesus' diagnostic question is, is fear, fear. Seeing our own brokenness and our own sin can be scary. In fact, I would argue that it is an existential threat uh, to our being, to sort of the person that we have believed ourselves to be. Don't forget the story of Adam and Eve from Genesis 3 that we looked at two weeks ago. Immediately after sinning, they covered themselves. They hid and they blamed. What was going on inside of Adam He tells us, he says this, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Sometimes we don't look at our own brokenness because we are hiding, we're afraid. One of the results of our sinfulness is fear. We fear that if people saw the real us, then they would reject or abandon us. That couldn't be a truer statement. One of the reasons that uh, we fear that if people saw the real us, they would reject and they would abandon us. And so we put out there what they think, we think they want us to be like, we think people want to see us as. We're afraid that God couldn't or wouldn't love us if he knew the depth of our brokenness. And so we go back to Adam and Eve's playbook. We hide, we cover, and we blame. Instead of looking at the log in their own eye, both Adam and Eve looked elsewhere. Adam pointed out Eve's guilt, and Eve points to the serpent's culpability. But one of my favorite sayings, I believe is from Carl Jung, and it says this, that which you most need to find will be found where you least wish to look. Let me read that one more time. That which you most need to find will be found where you least wish to look. Did Eve tempt Adam? Yeah. Did the serpent tempt Eve? Yes. But is that where they most needed to look? Of course not. They needed to see and own their own sin. That's where healing and restoration was going to be found, and that's true for us as well. When I read that quote, I automatically thought about Jesus and the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. I'm going to read this little uh, interaction, beginning of verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him, that is Jesus, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he, that is the young man, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions." In this story, we see a man who thought he was doing everything in his power to inherit eternal life. He thought he was just this close. 
You get the sense in the story that he's excited when he runs up to Jesus. He thinks he's doing or has done just about everything that's required by God to gain heaven, but then Jesus causes him to look at something that he doesn't really want to see. His wealth is an idol. His wealth is where he finds his ultimate security and satisfaction and safety. He's afraid to let it go, and he's afraid to trust God. Let me take you back one moment to Tim Keller's definition of the gospel. If you remember, he said this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. So people who struggle with pride need to hear the first part of this definition, particularly that they are more sinful and flawed than they dare believe. In other words, you are far, far more broken and far, far more sinful than you realize. Prideful people need to stand in the presence of a holy God in order to finally see their brokenness. They need to join with the prophet Isaiah in saying, woe is me for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, right? Fearful people, on the other hand, need to be reminded of the second half of Keller's definition of the gospel which is we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. In other words, you are more loved than you dare to hope. You are more accepted than you dare to hope. You're more forgiven than you dare to hope. God sees all of your sin, past, present, and future, and he still accepted you, still forgave you, still adopted you to be his child. It's only when we feel confident in God's affection and faithfulness to us that we'll feel safe and finally looking into the darkest recesses of our soul. It's there that we will find brokenness and ugliness, but it's also precisely there that we'll find healing and forgiveness from a loving Heavenly Father. A final caveat here. If you want to take Jesus' diagnostic question seriously, then you should probably consider getting some help. That could be help from a Young Life staff person. It could be from a campus outreach person. That help could come from the chaplain's office at Barry or Shorter or from someone at Windshape. Help in seeing your sin might be found in meeting with someone here at Seven Hills Fellowship or from a professional counselor at Battlefield. But just know that seeing and repenting of your sin will be one of the hardest things you've ever done, which is exactly why you shouldn't try to do it alone. Invite people into your life who love you and who are courageous enough to tell you the true things about yourself that you can't or are unwilling to see. And be ready, ultimately, for a fight. C.S. Lewis wrote this about this battle in Mere Christianity. He says this, The flesh knows that if the spiritual life gets hold of it, all of its self-centeredness and self-will are going to be killed, and it is ready to fight tooth and nail to avoid that. The good news is that we are not alone in this battle, this fight. Your Heavenly Father speaks words of love and validation over you, reminding you that you're created in His image and that you can do it. Jesus is with you as well. He was constantly praying for His disciples, if you remember, and Romans 8 tells us that He prays for us as well. And finally, the Holy Spirit dwells within each of God's children. He is at work in us, revealing our sin and empowering us to overcome it. We have a fellowship that surrounds us 
and is fighting for us. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, we thank you for these difficult questions that Jesus asks us and that you ask us. And Father, even this question that Jesus asked today um, about why it is that we are so quick to look at other people's faults and yet so blind to our own. And so Father, I just ask that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit um, to begin this process of seeing our own brokenness and sin and the ways in which it not only uh, costs us and costs those people we love, but even how it costs you. Father, I pray that you would, through your Spirit, give us um, the courage and the determination uh, to be willing to climb up on the autopsy table and to see our own brokenness and sin. Father, that you might be glorified. Father, that we might experience deep satisfaction and that we might bring wholeness um, into the lives of those people that we love most. We pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.